Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please play responsibly. For help, visit MDGamblingHelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Hello, and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and we've got a really great show for you today. I'm thrilled to have with me Dr. Jay Grimes, who is a board-certified pediatric dentist and a board-certified dental anesthesiologist. She's in private practice in Delaware, and I'll tell you, a lot of you, I'm sure listening, didn't know, as did I, that dental anesthesiology was its own specialty. And so when Jay contacted me, I thought this is really interesting. There's probably a lot of people out there like me who don't know that this is, is that this exists and would be really interested to learn as I was about the differences and similarities between training in anesthesiology and dental anesthesiology. And we'll talk about that today. So we're going to hear from Jay about what this specialty is like, how she got involved, and then how a dentist might go about deciding whether to do their own sedation, whether to hire a dental anesthesiologist, what the pros and cons that are. I think it's going to be a great discussion. So Jay, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Um, Always listen to the show in residency and still a listener. So I'm really excited to be here. Great. Fantastic. Well, so let's start um, by just asking you to introduce yourself a little. I gave a little background, but talk about where you, how you got where you are and um, what exactly you do. Yep. So um, as you mentioned, my name is Jay. Um, I am a dentist. Um, went to Un- University of Maryland for dental school and then um, liked general dentistry, but was just felt like there was something more. I really liked working with kids and special needs. So I decided to do a one-year general residency to just kind of feel out the field of dentistry and learn a little bit more about it. Um, I then decided to specialize in pediatric dentistry. Um, I love working with kids. I love working with special needs. Um, But when I was in my pediatric dental residency, we do get a training in like minimal and moderate sedation, but I realized that wasn't quite enough. Um, So then I went ahead and applied for a three-year residency in dental anesthesiology. um, And that was an amazing experience. And um, I've graduated in June of 2020. And here I am now working in private practice doing both, not at the same time, but I do 50% of my time as a pediatric dentist and about 50% of my time as an anesthesiologist. Great. All right. And so three years is a long time. Obviously, it's the same amount of clinical anesthesia training that regular anesthesiologists do. So um, we'll talk in a little bit about, you know, what what the differences and similarities are between your three years and our three years. But that's really interesting that it's so long. And how many um, how many are there? How many uh, dental anesthesiology training programs are there? Are there not a lot, I would imagine? There's not a lot. There's currently nine right now. Um, and each program will take, it really varies by the program. So roughly two to four residents, some programs have even more than that um, per year, but there's not, there's really not a lot of a super small specialty. Yeah. Okay. All right. So let's talk a little about the specialty. So do you have a feel for kind of when it was founded, when it started, when it came about? Yeah. So 
One really cool fun fact is the first time anesthesia was ever done in a public forum, it was actually done by a dentist. Um, Doctors Morton and um, Wells were the first one. They did nitrous oxide and ether and I think mass gen. Um, so that's our little claimed famous dentist. Um, and so ever since then, there's just kind of been um, dentists interested in, in anesthesiology as well as physicians. Um, and actually another interesting fact, um, Dr. Heidbrink, he's a dentist as well. He was chief of, of anesthesia and hired Arthur um, Goodell. I might be pronouncing his name wrong, but he's known for his work on inhalational anesthetics. So we've kind of just been bouncing back and forth between our two specialties. Um, but really I would say that in the eighties, there was a push to have it be recognized as an official specialty. Um, there were quite a few specialty applications. Um, it never actually happened um, until actually uh, in March of 2019. That is when we officially became an American Dental Association recognized specialty. But we've been around long before that. Um, and so hopefully we will continue to be around and hopefully get to grow bigger. I think that by being a recognized specialty that will increase a lot more interest in the field. A lot of dental schools don't even have a dental anesthesiologist in their, in their faculty. So I think by having it be an official recognized specialty, it will get more people learning about it, figuring out what it is, decide if it's something they might be interested in or something they might be interested in a service, having a dentist anesthesiology and anesthesiologist come to their practice. So I think there's a big horizon um, that's, that's just ready for us to take down and conquer it. And one of the things I think is really cool is because this is so new as an official specialty, um, we have the people that like founded the specialty still around with us, like at meetings and things of that nature. So you've kind of got, you know, the OGs and like the, the new school. So that's one of the things I think is really special about our field. That's awesome. And I love that kind of symmetry you mentioned in terms of the history, right? You're absolutely right. Morton was a dentist and the fact that that's now come around and dentistry is kind of embracing and, and starting this new specialty of a, a dental anesthesia is very cool. So tell me a little bit about the training programs. You mentioned you did a three-year training program. What is it like to apply to that? How You obviously have to do dental school first. You have to be in practice first, or can you go straight from dental school? You know, tell us a little bit about the process. So yes, you have to have graduated dental school, four-year program. Some people go directly out of dental school. Some people do private practice for a little bit. Some people do other residencies. Not as common if they do, they'll do a general residency. So we've really got a good mix of people. Um, in terms of the application process, very similar to, I think, med school residency in which we have a centralized application. There's a match, you upload everything up to one and then you pick all the programs that you wanna send it to. Um, we do have kind of our standard boards similar to you guys where we have our part ones and our part twos. Um, and then we also have something comprehensive basic science examination, which is kind of like a specialty um, exam that one would take to kind of apply um, for dental anesthesiology. Some programs accept it, some don't. So just kind of depends. Um, so but that's it's kind of the equivalent of like an entrance exam, like an MCAT for med school. Okay. Exactly, exactly. Um, so yeah, that's kind of the application process. Again, very similar. You interview, you rank, um, all of that good stuff. And then you just hope that the match gods get you to your first choice. So yeah. Fair enough. And obviously not a lot of choices because you said there's only nine programs. Yes. Yes. Um, and there's always more applicants than positions. So, right. Right. Okay. So, and then you, <clears throat> you said it's three years, uh, and do you do an intern year like people in anesthesia do, and then kind of two extra years of, of anesthesia or is it all anesthesia? So it really kind of varies by program. Um, typically, no, there isn't really a formal intern year. Um, there is a little bit of kind of that transitional maybe month that you have where you're getting acclimated to the OR, maybe paired up one-on-one -on -one with, um, with another resident. But for me, in my particular program, the way it worked is we worked pretty extensively with either senior residents or um, our attendings one-on-one, -on -one, either going with them to dental offices when they provided general anesthesia um, or sedation, or just following a senior resident in the OR, whether they're doing, you know, much more medicine anesthesiology for like appies, lacolis, whatever it is. Um, and so then our second and third year in the program, we're exclusively not exclusively, maybe like 80% in the OR, but as a minimum coda. So we have coda, not ACGME. 
as a minimum, we have to spend at least 24 months exclusively doing anesthesia um, and six months of that doing anesthesia specifically for dental cases. Um, so yeah, we do, we get a lot of training in all sorts of anesthesia. We're not just limited to just doing dental cases. You know, it's, it's, things that are appropriate for our level. We call it DA1 and then CA1. So cases that are appropriate for that level, we're doing it. We're working with the medical attendings. Um, it's a little bit, I will say, of a learning curve when you first get into the OR, because I think in dental school, we learn all the medicine. We don't learn how to apply it. So it's definitely a little bit like drinking out of a fire hose when you first get into the OR. Um, but I think that especially in my program, there was no dentist versus physician residents. We were all one team. We all collaborated together. A lot of times, especially when the physician, the CA residents would have dental cases, they'd call us and be like, okay, so what do we do? Nasal intubation, how is this working? And, and you know, so it, it, felt, it felt good. It felt very collaborative, which um, I think was what everyone wants in the residency. Yeah, that's great. So you clearly were, were working right alongside CA or, you know, what, what I'll call, I don't know what to call us, I guess what I would have normally said regular, but <laughs> maybe adult uh, medical anesthesiology residents, CA, we'll call them CA and DA, like you said. There you so go. You, you, the DA residents, dental anesthesia, were working alongside the CA, clinical anesthesia um, residents, CA1s doing similar cases. Now, w you mentioned your attendees were dental anesthesiologists. Were they all dental anesthesiologists or did you also work with Clinic with people like me who are not yes. dental or medical yes. anesthesia. Um, so we are cases with the dental anesthesia attendings were limited exclusively to dentistry. Um, that might have been mobile, you know, an outpatient office, or it might have been in um, in the hospital doing a dental case. Our medical attendings were the ones for any sort of medical um, procedure. So we worked with both, and it was really nice to get just different viewpoints because you can do anesthesia a million different ways. And so it's, re it's really cool to, I think, pick up little tricks from various attendings and put those in your tool bag and say, you know, this works for me, it doesn't work for me. So I really appreciated that. Um, and we got to do some things that um, like doing epidurals and spinals. We got to do that on occasion, which is really, really cool. I'm not doing that obviously in practice, but it was cool to just kind of get that exposure. Um, so it was, it was definitely great having all different types of attendings for sure. Yeah. Okay. So I was going to ask you, you know, obviously not a lot of utility for epidurals in dental anesthesia. Similarly, not a lot of use probably of the TEE. So do you, but you still do some cardiac and OB, maybe just less? Um, in my program, it was very minimal. It was mostly associated with another resident because there are only so many cases to go around and obviously the people that are going to do that in private practice. So, but I think that there's always opportunity that if you were interested, you could definitely learn on, like I could ask the cardiac anesthesia attending, Hey, um, I don't have a case today. Can I just kind of sit in and see how this goes and things of that nature? So there is definitely a learning opportunity. If you were interested, it was just, there's only so many cases to go around. Yeah, that makes sense. So were there other official, uh, more extensive non-OR rotations that you did? Yes. So um, outside of the OR, um, the biggest rotation that we had was dental anesthesia, which is, like I said, doing anesthesia in mobile um, private offices. We also did um, off-service rotations. So um, one of the, we rotated in um, emergency medicine, internal medicine, PEDS, um, critical care, um, oral facial pain, because that's a big part actually of, of our dental anesthesia. Um, we were the resident covering the PACU, which was a very, again, you do that your third year as a senior resident. And that is again, very overwhelming. It's a humbling moment. You think that you finally have this anesthesia thing down and just kidding, you know, you're going to learn a lot being the resident managing the PACU, which is pretty cool. Um, and one of the things I really enjoyed at my programs, we had something called a rep rapid response team, which responded to rapid responses and, and codes. And so we were part of that team, you know, kind of just open waiting for a call and things of that nature. So that was a really fantastic experience as well. And we also took call um, just along with the physician residents. So um, overnights, which as a dentist, I entered dental school, I didn't see that happening, but you know, it was a great experience. I learned a lot. Um, and that was again, really cool. Cause there's something, the hospital is definitely different after, you know, about 10 PM. So um, that was a really great experience. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I agree. There's so much learning to happen at night. Um, it can be tough, those, those, especially if they're 24 hour calls, but mm-hmm. you learn a lot. Yeah. Um, you mentioned your uh, board certification process is similar to uh, the ours and the American Board of Anesthesiology and that there's kind of a first part and a second part. Uh, do you take the first part after your DA one year like we do and then the second part at the mm-hmm. end or how does that work? So it's a little bit different. So we have our in-training examination every year, which really doesn't have any effect on our board certification process, but it kind of gets you into the thinking and the type of questions. Um, The first time you're eligible to take part one, which is a written exam, is the spring of your graduating year. Um, And then successful completion of that allows you to then sit for the oral examination one year later, and then successful completion of that makes you then board certified. Okay, great. And then what about now that you are board certified, do you have to do ongoing maintenance of certification? Yes. So um, the way it works is a minimal number of CE hours that we have to maintain um, specifically in anesthesia, not just, you know, with dentistry ADA. Um, We have also activities that we have to do kind of readings and things of that nature. Um, And yeah, so we do have to maintain our regulations in terms of being board certified. It's not just kind of one and done. Okay. Yeah, we recently, uh, and I think a lot of the um, medical boards are moving this way, went away from like an every 10 year big exam to what we call MOCA minute. So it's a a ongoing kind of do at your own pace kind of thing, um, you know, occasional questions, which is, I think, much better. And I think, you know, these fields are when I say these fields, I mean medicine and dent- dentistry. They're always evolving. So you want your you want your colleagues to be up on on top of the newest knowledge and you know be excited about doing it, not oh, I gotta take this exam, I gotta cram, I gotta, you know, hunker down for a month or two. Everyone in my family is miserable. Like it really should be an exciting experience where you're collaborating with your peers and learning more and just learning how the field has changed, you know. Even I graduated dental school in 2013. There's still so, when I talk to dental students now, there's big changes in, you know, 11, sorry, nine years. So I think it's a great way to do it. Great. Yeah, I agree. All right. So let's talk about your transition from doing just dentistry to doing anesthesia, dental anesthesia, and kind of what that uh, process is like. How is, how did it differ? What kind of things did you do along the way to make that transition? So once I knew that I was going into my anesthesia residency, um, I kind of would just, I got a lot of physiology books. I got a lot of farm books to just kind of figure out how I could just re brushing up on a lot of stuff that I hadn't used recently. Um, I had shadowed a couple of actual medical anesthesiologists to kind of figure out just how these things had worked. I've been exposed to it previously, but I think that there's a different interest level when you're interested in getting into the field than when you're actually going into the field. So um, that was something I did, just kind of picked everyone's brain as much as I could and soaked it up and realized, you know, some of the best advice I got was just, you're going to make mistakes, but are you, what you take from that and what you learn from that. Um, So really just trying to be a sponge as much as I could um, and just trying to catch up on the medicine that I hadn't really used in a couple of years. I would say that that was kind of what kind of spearheaded my um, my transition into the field. Yeah. And then at during residency, in addition to all the clinical rotations we talked about, I'm sure there were didactics. Are those similar, you think, to, to what is in a, a medical anesthesia residency or what does that look like for you? So, yeah, so that one of the things that was super cool is our didactics were with our um, CA residents, our corresponding class. So the way it worked is every third Wednesday, we would have a full academic Wednesday and there would be various lectures and some obviously would be a little bit more pl- applicable to our field and others weren't. And then we um, we were in the OR kind of immediately, but when the last two years when we exclusively became in the OR, there was a transition month where we would join the CA residents where basically there was a month of a lot of didactic lectures and a lot of kind of two-on-one kind of cases. Um, So that was a big part of our didactic component. But as dentists, we also have, you know, special anesthesia things that we do, and especially us being in the mobile environment, a lot of outpatient. So we would have our own lectures at night, um, 
you know, 6 p.m. or so, maybe two hours once or twice a month or board exam prep review. Um, so things of that nature. So we've combined with the physicians, but we also kind of had our own things. And we also attended, you know, grand rounds, M&Ms, things of those nature. And we presented in those as well. So again, that was that was really cool. Is that like, you know, we weren't limited to our um, exclusively anesthesia for dentistry. We, we kind of got it all in that. And I think that that's important because I think that for me, I, what makes me a great provider is I kind of overlearned all this stuff that I don't necessarily need to know, but it makes me very solid in my foundation. Yeah, that's great. So do you, when you, I meant to ask you this before, when you were working as a resident, I mean, after that first initial month or two where you're obviously very closely supervised, were you just like any CA resident assigned to a room and attending would have you in one room and, you know, another resident in another room? Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly like that. We called our attending the night before, talked about cases, what our anesthesia plan was, um, you know, saw them in the morning. They were there for intubation. They were there for extubation. They might sometimes pop in and out. Um, they did it more often the less senior you were. Um, but I would say as a general rule, by the time I was at my third year, because I get to know you and your competency, you know, give me a call. All right, tubes in. See you later. Give me a call when um, you need a bathroom break. <laughs> they love giving bathroom breaks and anesthesia. <laughs> or um, when, you know, 10 minutes before you're getting ready to excavate. So, yeah. Yeah, great. Okay. So, obviously, dental anesthesia is now one official possibility to do after dental school. Um, maybe just give folks, because certainly the, the non-dental people in the audience aren't going to know, what other residency options do people have after dental school? And, of course, you don't have to do residency, right? So, unlike medical school, you can go straight from dental school and practice. For the most part, um, for example, the state of New York requires you to do some sort of residency, whether you're a specialist or whether you do a general residency. But as a general rule, you are correct. Residency is optional. Um, in terms of residency options, there can be, like I said, a one-year general residency that I mentioned. There can be a whole spectrum. There's endodontics, which is root canals. There's prosthodontics, which is things like crowns and dentures oral maxillofacial, um, radiology, pathology, dental public health, oral surgery. Um, yeah, so there's tons of, not tons, I think there's probably about 11 or so specialties. So there are, there's official recognized specialties, and then there's just kind of one-offs of people that, you know, are interested in um, TMJ type things, and that's kind of what their niche is, but it's not an official recognized specialty. So that's another thing that's pretty cool. It's like, you can kind of, as a, you're, I feel like in medicine, you're kind of, if you're an anesthesiologist, you're limited to practicing anesthesia. You can kind of still, like I could do a pair of dentures on a, on a patient if I wanted to, um, but the rule is it has to be to the standard of care as a prosthodontist, which for me, it would not be. So that's why I don't do dentures. <laughs> so yeah, that's the thing you can do. There's a, it's a big field. You just need to make sure that you're doing it to the level of a specialist. Yeah, fair enough. Okay. And so what about uh, orthodonture? That's another With orthodontics. Yep. That's another one. Braces. It's exactly, exactly. Yep. Yes. I'm, I'm intimately familiar. Yes. With that. <laughs> now my, my two older children uh, who both have braces. Yeah, um, exactly. As far as I can tell, the orthodontists have managed to um, go from when I was a kid where everybody just got braces and you just had them and then that was it to now everybody needs them twice now, right? That's the new one. Yes. Phase one, there's a big push for airway and um, skeletal growth and all of those things. That's definitely kind of on the up and coming. So for sure, yes. It, like like you said, when I got braces, you know, it's like, oh, you just get them once when you're older. You just kind of line everything up. If you need jaw surgery later, you get the jaw surgery. But now it's like proactive intervention. Let's, let's take care of this now. So yeah, it's definitely been a shift. Yeah, very interesting. All right. So let's talk about... Um, how anesthesia is used in dentistry, because obviously one option, which we'll talk about is, is what you do, which is you are a, an anesthesiologist for dentistry and you do the anesthesia while presumably someone else does whatever they're doing. Right. But certainly there are dentists who do their own. And so let's talk about that. Let's talk about general dentists. What happens in terms of anesthesia, if any, during a procedure or a, a work that a general dentist is doing? So typically for this, you're going to need a separate permit. I want to back up and say that nitrous oxide, considered minimal sedation, 
does not always need a separate permit or separate classes because we are trained in that in dental school. But anything more enteral, parenteral, um, as a general dentist, you're going to do some sort of additional CE, or maybe you'll get that training in your one-year residency. And then you're probably, depending on the state, it varies. You're going to need a separate permit, maybe even two permits if you want to do children under 13 or under seven. Sometimes the threshold is different and also depends on the level of what you want to do. Um, I would say typically general dentists, they're sticking more on the middle, minimal to moderate sedation because they're oftentimes doing it at the same time that they're doing their dentistry. Um, so really, you're more so looking at maybe a, just a super anxious adult um, that needs to have a tooth taken out and you know you want to give them a little bit. Um, you want to write a prescription for diazepam beforehand or you want to give them IV sedation beforehand. So that kind of can um, really vary for, for general dentists. So that's kind of how I would say that general dentist to kind of just kind of stick to the, the more, the lighter end of the anesthesia spectrum. And is that, you know, what keeps them there? Is that because they are only allowed to use certain agents or is it their own comfort level? Like, let's say that a general dentist got the permit to give, you know, sedation and decided I'm going to put them on a propofol drip. Like, can they do that? Or I, that's state regulated because some okay. states will specifically say, if your permit limits you to these drugs okay. um, or your permit says that you can only give or parenteral or your permit says you can only stay in the spectrum. So it really kind of varies by state, um, but in accordance with the permit that you get, there are minimal education levels. As someone that's um, completed a three-year anesthesia residency, I'm going to qualify for all of those permits. But if you're a dentist that's done a one-year general residency, residency, say you've done 40 um, minimal to moderate sedations um, in your in your residency, then you'll submit those cases. And then, you know, depending upon what the state says, you, you'll get the appropriate permit. And if you want to do more, you can do additional CE to do that, um, to, to, to make sure that you are skilled in that. Okay. So let me ask you about nitrous. Um, obviously, and you, you are very familiar with this, when we use nitrous in the operating room, it's a flow meter. We see the percent of nitrous uh, and therefore the percent of oxygen that the patient is getting. That, as far as I know, doesn't happen in a dental office. So if you're giving nitrous, is it just a fixed like 50% ratio or how do you know how much nitrous you're giving? Yep. So we kind of exactly have the exact same flow meter. We'll turn on how many liters of oxygen and then we'll dial up, you know, say we want um, 30% um, sorry, so maybe we want uh, 60% oxygen at, you know, four liters a minute, and then we want 40% nitrous. And it also has that fail safe. So you can't give more, um, you can't go over 70% nitrous. Um, so yes, it's, it's very, very similar. Some of them have literally a hand crank. Some of them have a little digital scale, but it's very similar. We're, we're aware of how much we're giving, how many liters and things of that nature. Okay. That's so I was not aware of that. I actually thought it was like just a mask that must have been, you know, limited to a certain amount of uh, percent of nitrogen, but it sounds like you can adjust it just like we can in the yes. OR. Yes, 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 okay. yes. And I would okay. say that maybe in the, you know, I'm still fairly new in practice. Maybe in the past it was like that and some still older systems have it that way. But as a general rule, all the practices that I have been in have that, have that system that I mentioned, whether it's plumbed in, you know, in the back of their unit or whether it's a cart they carry around, it's more or less that kind of setup. Okay, great. So, you know, it sounds like obviously there's some state regulation of this, but there's probably a fair amount of leeway for uh, general dentists if they want to do their own sedation to do this. And I know there's some controversy around this. I know, actually, I, I heard a podcast recently, and I'm not going to remember what it was on, which podcast, but I heard someone speaking about, um, it might have been on something like The Daily, I don't remember, but it was a, a person out in, uh, no, you know what it was? It was uh, Anesthesiology News has a podcast, and they interviewed a woman out in California who has really been pushing to regulate um, the use of, of anesthesia by dentists more because I think it has a couple of really bad outcomes out there with um, people who either died or had significant uh, morbidity um, from, you know, understandably, the dentist is do, is focused on the dentistry and therefore maybe not paying as close attention to the um, patient's airway. So, uh, and we'll get into that more, but it sounds like there's some leeway and, and some controversy there. Let's, before we talk about that though, let's talk about um, a more kind of extreme example, like oral surgeons. Now, you know, you're actually doing surgery, so there's going to be a difference. This is not like a, a little diazepam, right? So what's happening there with the anesthesia and are they doing it themselves? Stay with us. We'll be right back with more with Dr. Jay Grimes. 
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please play responsibly. For help, visit MDGamblingHelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. All right, we're back. And Dr. Grimes is going to talk about what oral surgeons do for anesthesia. So um, to give you a little back, bit of background with oral surgery, it's either a four or six year residency. If it's six, you get an MD as well. Um, and they have a dedicated separate anesthesia rotation of at least six months where they, again, similar to us are right along, depending on the hospital, right along their physician colleagues, learning how to do general anesthesia. Um, oftentimes when they then take that skill set into private practice, it varies. Um, there are some oral surgeons that will have another provider, typically a dentist anesthesiologist come in, um, and they might do that for all of their cases, any sort of thing that they feel like needs any sort of sedation because they just don't want to deal with it. Or maybe for their longer, um, cases, they're doing quad psychomas, you know, five plus hour cases where they just don't have the brain capacity to focus on the surgery and that, um, or they can do the operator anesthetist model that typically is more more, you know, straightforward surgery, younger population, you know, 20 year olds getting their wisdom teeth out. Um, typically as a general rule, those cases for the oral surgeons are not intubated, they're open airway. Um, and it really kind of depends on the surgical technique, but it's going to be typically some mix of probably midazolam, ketamine, fentanyl, propofol, maybe bolus are running as a drip um, in the background. So, but because those cases are so short, um, Again, depending on the complexity of the extractions, you know, it can be anywhere from 10 minutes, 20 minutes, sometimes it can be a little bit longer. So they, um, there's the capacity for them to do both the operator and anesthetist. That's, that's very common. Um, but I would say that as you're getting more complicated, they're either going to go, you know, if they're doing um, or jaw surgery, um, things of that nature, they're going to go to the hospital and they're going to have a separate anesthetist. But as a general rule, yes, they do the operator anesthetist model, but um, they'll also sometimes bring in a CRNA to do the to do the anesthesia as well. Depending on the state, they can be the supervising physician or some state CRNAs can work independently. So it really kind of, um, it really kind of varies. But one of the things that I have, you know, learned is a lot of the oral surgeons that I've come across with when I ask them about their anesthesia te technique, they tend to be, they tend to realize the importance of patient selection and being conservative. You know, local is their best anesthesia. Um, and they're relying mostly on that. You know, I think there is this perception of, you know, oral surgeons are kind of, you know, reckless and things of that nature. And I realized that's not, that hasn't been the case. I mean, when I got my thirds out, it was, it was the same oral surgeon who did it. So I think that, you know, there's really been a shift in because one death is too many, but I think with all of these deaths, we've realized we really have to choose the right patients. And we also have to realize our bandwidth for being able to do both. Yeah. So I think that's, that's absolutely right. What, um, it, let's just say that uh, an oral surgeon is doing a 20 minute, 30 minute, you know, extraction or something and, and they um, are going to do, you know, open airway, but general anesthesia, um, propofol, as you said, propofol, ketamine, Versed, whatever it is. Um, 
do they put patients on a monitor, like a full uh, monitor the way we do in the OR? Yeah, like, so they're you, using they're pulse ox, they're using blood pressure, they're using EKG, they're using capnography, they're using all of those same monitors. Yes, correct. Okay. And so then I get, I'm imagining this situation where you're, if you're really doing it yourself, you're kind of in the math and you've just trained yourself to like look up at the monitor, you know. Yeah. And, you, and you know how we have the background noise of the pulse ox where we're hearing that beep and it gets to be irregular or the pitch changes and things of that nature. You know, your eyes, we call it head on a swivel. So you're always just kind of, you're doing your, your, I guess, extractions and then you're looking up. So yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, all right. So that's an option. Um, and obviously, as we already discussed, some some controversy there and, and sounds like most Certainly one big one big factor, as you mentioned, would be patient selection. One of the things I would imagine, though, is, of course, and I'm sure you've seen this in your time, I know I've seen it a lot, is the person who looks, I mean, man, they're young, they're healthy, and their airway looks beautiful. And you think, oh, this is going to be, you know, easy, easy, into easy mask, easy intubation. And then for some reason, it's not, right? And that you would never know. So there's that small, it's not often, but there's that mm-hmm. small percentage of people who you would never guess, but they end up being someone who's going to obstruct like crazy and then be hard to mask and intubate. Yes. And those are the people who you're really in trouble with if, you, yes. if you're trying to scramble in an office. And exactly, you hit the nail on the head. You can do all the pre-op assessment questionnaires, things of that nature. And then just for whatever reason, they they don't have the best reserve. And you're like, oh, this is, I didn't see this coming. But I mean, we all kind of are always prepared for that at any time. Um, but yes, for sure. And I think in, in those cases, you realize if we're going to abort the surgery right now and let's focus on keeping the patient stable. Now, is there any data that you know of, outcomes data? You know, um, obviously, it would be certainly seems like it would be great for your specialty. um, And by that, I mean, uh, dental anesthesiology to be able to show, look, when you hire one of us, you know, your outcomes are better. There there are less, there's less morbidity and mortality. Obviously, the problem is there's not a lot of morbidity and mortality. So you would need huge numbers. So I'm guessing no, but I thought I'd ask you. Yeah, not that I'm aware of. I mean, obviously, you have the closed claims cases that you could kind of pick through. But as in terms of a general um, database, I would, the Anesthesia Research Foundation, maybe, but I'm going to actually, that's a good point. I'm going to look into that and get back to you. Um, Yeah, because that we're all about data and evidence-based um, driven practice. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, if you find anything, let me know. We can post it in the show notes for yeah, folks. For sure. Again, I'd be surprised for a few reasons. One, you know, your specialty is pretty young. Um, two, again, you'd need huge numbers of, of you know, to, to look at people who've had a dental anesthesiologist versus people who haven't, you'd need mm-hmm. huge numbers. And then the third is, of course, confounding because it's not going to be randomized. And so the fact that someone decided you needed a dental anesthesiologist might mean that you know you you looked like you were going to be in more difficult airway or the procedure was going to be longer. So you know you'd re- I, you'd really need to randomize it, and I, I'd be shocked if anyone's done a big randomized trial on this. But it'd be interesting. We can see. So all right. So we've got you know all this various practice, and right now it sounds like no matter what it is, if you're uh, the the ex- the one extreme is people who've done a dental anesthesia residency who are very fully trained in anesthesia. The next kind of step would be people uh, who are oral surgeons who you know, have done a significant rotation in anesthesia and then general dentists and maybe some of the other dental specialties who do some anesthesia training as part of their residency, but not a ton. Um, and so, and then it's going to be a mix of, you know, your own comfort level, your state's willingness to give you a license for whatever or a permit for whatever kind of anesthesia. So there's a lot of factors, it sounds like, that are going to play into what is done and what is not. But certainly important for people to know that, I guess for dentists to know, and I'm sure they do, but that, you know, there is this specialty of dental anesthesia. And if you have a particularly difficult case, you might want it. Now, you know, could someone say, all right, well, I let's say I'm a dentist and I usually do my own. I use some nitrous, maybe a little percent, I do whatever. And then, you know, but I've got a patient who, man, like I think this patient is going to be really tough and I think they're going to need some more significant anesthesia. Could I say, you know, Jay, I want to hire you just for just for this patient. Like, are you are people like you available, you know, just for like one offs? Or do people really have to have a relationship with someone who they hire regularly? I think it kind of depends. One of the things that I forgot to mention earlier is that as a dentist, if you have a moderate sedation permit, you always have to be prepared to deal with because anesthesia is a spectrum going deep and having the appropriate kind of um, equipment to handle that. That's one thing I would like to say, but it depends on, um, your kind of your practice model. So 
There are, I would say most dentists and anesthesiologists work in a mobile kind of practice. They're at Dr. Smith's on Monday, Dr. Jones on Tuesday, et cetera, et cetera. And so there might be, for example, Dr. Smith, he may only need you once or twice a year because he's got just that super anxious phobic patient, et cetera, et cetera. And you might have a relationship with another, say, pediatric dentist where there's a huge need where you're going there once a week and you're doing, you know, five or six cases a day. Um, so it really kind of varies and it also kind of depends on what your what your comfort level is. Um, I, I practice only in one office doing anesthesia. Um, and so I am fortunate to kind of only work with a select group of dentists because another thing you have to realize is as a dentist anesthesiologist, in a dental office, typically depends on maybe not so much with an oral surgeon, but if you're going to a general dentist office, you are the most competent, comfortable provider in the airway. So, you know, some people may not feel comfortable working with Dr. Smith because, you know, they realize that if there were unfortunately an adverse event that it wouldn't be able to be managed well, because maybe the setup is they can't get a gurney in the room, things of that nature. Um, so I would say that's definitely done on a case by case basis um, and on the comfort level of the dentist anesthesiologist. Okay. So that's pretty common, as you said, to kind of go different, you know, kind of mobile, mobile anesthesia in different places, but you obviously want to know that they've got the equipment. For example, you said, you know, you, if you're going to be using nitrous, you're going to have a flow meter, you're going to need all your monitors. What about other things that, you know, we, are you ever using uh, inhaled anesthetics like SIBO nitrous? And if so, is there an MH card in these places? So I'm going to talk about it from the perspective of a mobile dentist anesthesiologist. So we don't just show up with like a little bag of drugs and that's it. We come in with carts. So um, oftentimes, you know, depending on the office, we may or may not use their own um, oxygen, their own nitrous, but we come with our own carts. So our carts have everything, anything from if we're using um, triggering agents, we're going to have, you know, Rianadex, we're going to have our dantrolene, we're going to have a defibrillator, we're going to have our own e-tank, we're going to have a bag valve mask. We have little like connections to hook up everything because Dr. Smith may have one connection for his oxygen that we need to hook up our cords to. Um, Dr. Jones may have a different one. Um, And so we kind of are just kind of always ready for anything because we're in all these different places. Um, in terms of US specifically inhalational agents, again, it varies. So when I was in um, residency, we went to one oral surgeon's office, he had his own machine. So we just use that. Um, we also have like kind of mini machines where we can administer SIBO throughout the case or just use it for a mask induction and then turn it off and then run the patient on a TIVA anesthetic. Um, so it really kind of depends on the provider, but we've got a whole kind of toolkit that we that's pretty extensive that we come with because we have to be prepared for everything. The the, de- the typical dentist office just, you know, maybe has an oxygen e-tank, a bag valve mask, um, maybe a glucometer, but that's pretty much all. So we're coming with all of the stuff. And to be frank, it can be a little bit brutal sometimes because you're getting there, you know, an hour plus early, you're setting everything up, you're doing your cases, you're breaking it down, putting it back in your car to go to another place tomorrow. Um, so that's just kind of the nature of the beast. But at the same time, it always makes it exciting. You're going to all these offices, hanging out with different people, meeting new people. So um, there's there's pros and cons, I think, to both both sides. Wow. Yeah. So you really are lugging a lot of stuff up and down uh, mm-hmm. steps or in the yes. elevator. Uh, yeah. Now, what um, does does each individual provider have to then like buy their own defibrillator and their own mini anesthesia machine and and take it all with them? Or, you know, that seems like it would be a huge kind of upfront cost. It is. It is. Uh, typically they do. Um, anesthesia machines, I think some people some people have, some people don't. That's not really, that's kind of a preference, but like kind of the non-negotiables defibrillators, because an office is just going to have an AED. Um, you know, so things like that, your Zoll, making sure your tanks are up to date, you, all of your emergency meds, your AMEO, all of those things. Yeah, you're, you're, you're buying it, you're carrying it around. Yep. So it's, 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 it's typically on us. Again, that's, that's the average, but depending if you're working at an oral surgeon's office who does GA and you're exclusively maybe working with him or her, maybe you don't need to carry as much because they do do that type of stuff. So it, it, it does vary, but as a general rule, we kind of like to have our own stuff. So we know that it's there, it's ready. It's not expired. And because at the end of the day, if something were to go wrong, it's on us to make sure that it's, that it's handled correctly. Yeah. Now, if you're doing anesthesia for a dental procedure in a hospital, 
what is the, you know, how does that hospital decide whether to bring you in or whether to use their kind of in-house anesthesiologists? Is it very... So I would say that when you ask that question about a one-off, it probably does not apply to the hospital because you're going to have be credentialed at that hospital. You're going to be a regular provider. Um, I know my pediatric residency in Colorado, they had several dentist anesthesiologists on staff that did, um, as our group, we think we went like th- about three times a week. So they were doing anesthesia for us, but they were also doing anesthesia um, for you know other either private practice dentists or other medical procedures. Um, So as a general rule, no, you're kind of going to kind of be credentialed at that hospital, part of that um, anesthesia team. So that's typically how that that makes sense. And so I guess any given hospital, you know, I I would imagine that a big university hospital with their own anesthesiologists are probably using those anesthesiologists for dental cases, but plenty of hospitals may, you know, either not have their own anesthesia department. And so they may bring in a certain group that has some dental anesthesiologists in it or something like that. Is that right? Yeah, but I, like you said, the majority, they're going to own, use their own physician anesthesiologist because they're just not enough of us. <laughs> right, right. So, yeah. Um, yeah. And you can imagine uh, in the future, you know, a situation where a group who may serve a variety of hospitals and may do, you know, a, a lot of in one hospital, maybe they do a lot of dental cases. They might, you know, at they've got, I'm making all this up, but they've got 25 anesthesiologists on staff. Maybe they hire one or two dental anesthesiologists to exclusively do those cases. Yes. Um, so as more of you graduate, <laughs> there's more of you around, that may happen. Um, okay, so that sounds good. We've talked about the, the practice models of the kind of mobile anesthesiology, um, dental anesthesiologist versus someone who may be more based in the hospital. Um, and then uh, let's talk a little bit about patient population. So you obviously are trained as a pediatric uh, dentist. And so talk a little bit about how you decide whether to use um, anesthesia or not for your uh, pediatric patients and then what other patient populations might have specific needs. So yeah, one of the cool things is because I am both specialists, I kind of am always wearing both hats. So typically the thing that starts to make me think anesthesia in the back of my mind is lack of cooperation whether it's what we call pre-cooperative, they're just so young, they're three years old, they just don't have the ability to cooperate. Um, extensive cases where, you know, full mouth dentistry where, you know, we can only do so much for two reasons. One, because of how much local anesthesia we could give them. But two, they're just, their cognitive ability to sit and cooperate. Um, because we find that the more visits they have, the more their behavior tends to deteriorate. Um, so those are kind of things that I'm thinking in the back of my mind. And then I'm also thinking um, just kind of the patient psyche. Um, At the end of the day, I'm never going to do treatment where I feel like it's unsafe. The patient is flailing around. I'm using a very sharp instrument that can make a hole in your tooth. So it can easily cut your cheek, your gum. Um, But sometimes, you know, you kind of have to, it's not really fun. The the kid is screaming, you know, that they're numb. They're just not happy. They have dental anxiety. So I start to just think about just the patient psyche, because there's a lot of parents and adults that say, I remember being younger, being held down, and I'm terrified of the dentist now, I have awful teeth now, et cetera, et cetera. So we're trying to balance, I think, competency in terms of making sure that they get the best care that they need, but also just realizing, you know, I can hold you down to do this treatment, but is it really the best? And then another thing I'm thinking of is medical history in terms of would this patient be, what are me as a dentist, what is my access to treat this kid under sedation? Can I send him, you know, can we do him, can I do his anesthesia and we keep it within the practice or is he have a, you know, is he extremely overweight or has some sort of conflicting medical condition or comorbidity where he'd be better suited at a hospital, but I don't have hospital privileges as a pediatric dentist. So you're kind of using all of these things to meet people where they're at. And then also another thing to think of is um, in terms of insurance costs, um, because now you've got two separate costs. You've got your dental costs and you've got your anesthesia costs, which sometimes depending on the insurance, if the anesthesia is provided as a dentist, the medical insurance won't reimburse for that. Um, But sometimes Medicaid, for example, here in Delaware will reimburse. So there's a lot of different, there's a whole comprehensive picture that you need to think about, have that discussion with the parent as well. Yeah. Okay. So definitely seems like There's a lot, as we talked about before, an individual patient, what might go into whether they are a good choice to have anesthesia in an office, 
then you have to think about whether a given patient needs anesthesia at all. And that's going to depend on a lot of things. Certainly, there are different, different um, things that come up with kids, as you said. Some adults obviously may have special needs and may not be um, able to cooperate either. Um, and, uh, and then, of course, some people just have real anxiety around dentistry and are going to need some sedation no matter what's happening. Yes, right? exactly. Exactly. We talked about different surgery types, kind of oral surgery. Um, you've talked a little about pediatric dentistry. Um, you said often they're done with open airway um, versus intubation. Tell me a little bit more about that. What, what uh, I mean, obviously outside of, you know, extreme kind of long oral surgeries that are going to, obviously you're going to want to secure airway. Um, are there other situations where you think I'd rather have an intubated patient uh, as opposed to an open airway? I think it, it it's, Putting provider preference aside, a lot of times it's dictated by the surgery. So for pediatric cases, those are pretty much 100 in my situation. I prefer to intubate those for a couple of reasons. One, they're using a lot of water. So I know that I have a nice secure tube in there. Um, I still, I tell them to be judicious with suction and they use a device called an isolate, which sucks up extra water. Um, so, but also just the ability to, it's a lot more smooth for me versus when it's open airway, it's a kid. Are they going to tolerate the IV? It's just a lot more variable. So for me with kids, I tend to just have an intubated case. Um, but something that I would consider doing open airway is someone that's old enough that will tolerate me starting an IV, just like a 16-year-old who's scared of like needles in the mouth, but can do, you know, will let me do an IV start or a super anxious adult where they just need a little bit of something um, to just kind of get them over that hump, whether it's they have a root canal, whether they've got a couple fillings, things of that nature. Um, and and you also have a conversation with the surgeon. I think one of the things that's really unique about us as dentists and anesthesiologists is we can talk that verbal, that verbal dentist language. And I, as a dentist, I can anticipate the surgical needs probably way more than anyone else could, because I know what it's like to do that other side. No, I'm not an oral surgeon. No, I've never placed an implant, but I've got enough information to be able to, I think, titrate that anesthesia best to the surgeon's needs. Um, so, but really it's just kind of a conversation about basic patient expectations and need for anesthesia and what the procedure dictates for sure. Yeah. So let's use that example of a, an adult or an older kid, you know, teenager who is, I mean, they're just a little anxious. They don't need to be knocked out and intubated, but they're not going to tolerate whatever it is that's about to happen with just nothing. Mm -hmm. So you need something. Do you have a preferred, I mean, it, let's say that you're not going to take the time to like give them an oral pill and wait a couple, you know, wait 45 minutes. So something IV and you can, let's just assume you can get an IV in them. Is, do you have a preferred, do you do low dose propofol, little Versed, little fentanyl? How do you know, what do you like to use? So typically it kind of varies by patient. Um, but once I get that IV, it's kind of like to do midazolam right away, get that in there. Um, fentanyl, I like just in terms of the stimulation in the beginning is local because we ha I have a conversation with the dentist that, you know, your local is actually super important. Um, and then I typically will have a propofol just ready to bolus, but what the drug I really like to use um, as kind of a drip in the background is Presidex. Um, because I'm a, in this type of case, if it's just kind of, you need a little bit of something, it's probably gonna be open airway because again, quicker recovery as well. Um, I really like Presidex in terms of it has that sedating, doesn't suppress the respirations. Um, I So a lot of times I will just kind of run Presidex in the background, maybe ketamine, but really just, I love Presidex. <laughs> yeah, great. I, I love that. What what uh, dose do you like to run? Um, typically, I will do anywhere from like point. I'll start out typically around like 0.4 mics per kilos per hour, and then kind of adjust accordingly to the patient. Yeah, yeah, great. And thank you for pointing out the dosage because that, of course, is as far as I know the only medication we run at mics per kilo per hour. And so that I, I always wonder, you know, it's like a setup waiting for for a bad something bad to happen, right? We run everything at mics per kilo per minute except Presidex is mics per kilo per hour. So I just like to emphasize that so people, you know, have that that exception in their mind. And um, you know, okay, well that's great. And reason, I just want to tell you a fun story yeah. about that. The only reason I know is that it's mics per kilo per hour is because when I was in residency, we were at a mobile office and um, the, the attending has me set the pump and I do mics per kilo per minute. And for some reason, there's some, some sort of issue with the chair, the dental chair, they can't get it back. So it's running, but like, we're like oh, she'll be fine. It's 0.2, whatever. And then we look at the pump after, you know, 10 minutes and we're like, ooh, I had to have that awkward conversation. 
thank God the patient was stable, didn't have significant bradycardia, things of that nature. But yeah, you're right. It's, it's, it's like precedence. Why do you have to, why do you have to be different? So sure. But that's a lesson that I will always remember. It's Mike's per kilo per hour now. Yep. And I always tell my residents, you know, look at the, at the number that tells you how many mLs per hour are going in. Because if you look at that and it says like 200, right, then probably something is wrong, right? Yes. So that should just be a good clue. Yes. Um, yeah, good. All right. Well, thanks for sharing that story. So we've talked a little bit about some of the challenges of dental anesthesia. The most significant that I stick out in my mind of what you said is the idea of doing this mobily and having to carry all your own stuff up and down and around and carry everything with you. Um Anything else uh, that we didn't cover, though, that you think of as, as a real challenge you face in, in that part of your practice? Um, I think just explaining to patients a lot, like a lot of people don't know who we are, healthcare patients, et cetera. And so kind of explaining to them, hey, I'm Dr. Grimes, I'm your dentist anesthesiologist. And they're like, but you're a dentist. And it's like, yes, and kind of justifying and explaining to them that I actually am qualified to do this. I've received extensive training. I've done a residency program. Um, So I think just a challenge in the field is just being, you know, um, educating other healthcare providers. A lot of even, like you said, anesthesiologists don't know we exist. Um, So dentists don't know we exist. So I think that's really just a huge challenge huge challenge, um, I think, in the field. But I, like I said, I think that it's very promising with us being a recently recognized specialty. Yeah, fantastic. Um, all right, Jay, this has been great. Anything we didn't cover that you want to hit before we move on? One thing I also just wanted to mention, some specialties will also get training in anesthesia. Um, pediatric dentistry, I learned how to do um, oral moderate sedation. Um, periodontists, which are like the gum disease, the gum specialists, they also will get IV sedation as just part of their requirements. Um, so some specialists will get some additional training in that. Um, and they kind of, again, stick to their lane and, and do, do the spectrum where on the spectrum they're most comfortable. But yeah, that's pretty much all I got to say. Great. Well, this has been great. Let's turn to the part of our show where we make random recommendations. Do you have something you'd recommend the audience check out? Yes. So I am reading this book called American Cartel by Scott Hyam and Sarah Horowitz. Um, It follows some DEA agents and um, the drug company, their investigation of the drug company's roles in the opioid epidemic. Um, I just think that it's it's really interesting um, as a book itself, but I just feel like even from being in dental school where we were we weren't really restricted or discouraged from writing prescriptions for opioids secondary to procedures to the pendulum swinging all the way in the other direction where it's like, no, we're not ever writing for narcotics. And really the answer is probably somewhere in the middle. So um, I think that just given my background in anesthesia and, and, and the listeners backgrounds, they might find that to be a really interesting book to listen to. That sounds awesome. Thanks for the recommendation. And I will recommend... Um, Though I'm slightly hesitant to do so, and I'll say why in a second, but but it is fantastic, and I'll represent uh, re- recommend the Crescent City series. It's a fantasy novel series by a, a really fantastic author named Sarah J. Maas, M A A S, and um, I was someone recommended it. Uh, I'm there's only unfortunately, and this is the reason I say I hesitate because there's only two so far, so I'm almost done with the second, but it'll be a, a longer series. So much like Game of Thrones or any other series that isn't finished, you may read the first two and want more and it's not out yet. Um, But they're so good that I I do think it's worth. She also has some other series, which I haven't read yet, but will be reading when I finish this. She's an incredibly good author. The one thing I will say, because I didn't know this going in and I discovered it, is that though though they are amazing and the storylines are great, it's exciting, they're page turners, they are incredibly sexually explicit. And I did not know that. Didn't bother me. I think it was fine. But just know, audience, that if you decide to pick these up, this is probably not a book you would uh, give to your young child. And uh, just be aware if you're sensitive about that stuff, then you might want to um, pass on this one because it is very explicit, but very, very good and entertaining. So if that sounds good to you, check them out. Sarah J. Moss, the Crescent City series or any of her other series I've heard are also great as well. Jay, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm just so excited to be here and just want to share what we do as dentist anesthesiologists. So it's been great. Thank you. All right. Hopefully you got as much out of that as I did. That was really fantastic. Let us know what you thought. Go to the website, acrac.com, where you can leave a comment. Others can learn from what you have to say. If you are a fan of the show, you can follow us. We're on Twitter. We are on Facebook. We are on Reddit. And we are on Instagram. 
I'm at Jay Walpaw on Twitter, and we're at ACRAC Podcast, and you can find us on all those other platforms as well. If you are a fan of the show, please consider going to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. If you'd like to support the making of the show, please consider going to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, it makes a big difference, and we really appreciate it. You can also make donations anytime by going to paypal.me slash ACRAC or looking up Jay Walpaw on Venmo. Thank you so much to those who have already made donations and become patrons. We really appreciate it. Thanks, as always, to our fantastic ACRAC crew. Dr. Brian Park is our tech lead. Sonia Amanat and Chris Reese are our social media managers. Dr. April Liu and Edison Jang are our production assistants. Thank you so much for all that you do. Our original ACRAC music is by Dr. Dennis Kuo. You can check out his website at studymusicproject.com. All right, that is it for today. For the ACRAC Podcast, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Thanks for listening. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.